think I caught a few of you smiling during that last song. That's awesome. Thank you, guys. Well, good morning. According to the New York Times several years ago, uh, an airport in Houston had a problem. It was a customer service problem. People were complaining uh, about the wait times at baggage claim. The average was about eight minutes. Uh, it's a long time when you're waiting for a suitcase trying to get somewhere. They tried a bunch of fixes, nothing worked. Somebody got an idea. They realized uh, that it took one minute to walk from the gate to the baggage claim. And people are spending about seven minutes just standing there. So um, they get an idea. What if we move the terminal farther away from the baggage claim? The, all the arrival, the, the, the arrival gates, and they did that. They moved them about eight minutes away from the baggage claim. And so people were all just using better part of that time simply walking. By the time they got there, their bags, they would arrive very shortly. And complaints went to zero. Isn't that interesting? What it tells us is that there's just something about us that struggles with time. Waiting is hard. There's never enough time or, or we don't know what to do with time when we have nothing but time. In fact, uh, the problem at the carousel is really empty time. You notice like when you're standing there and you're you know, tired from the long flight and you're just waiting hoping to get somewhere and the bags are coming. You look at that big black opening where they pop out and everybody's looking there and you kind of, time is measured by each bag that pops up, right? Not mine, not mine, tick, talk. And begin, you know, soon the doubts start to come. And you start to doubt, did the airline actually bring my bag? You start to doubt yourself. Why, do I, why in the world am I the only idiot left that checks a bag, right? Uh, that, that empty time is really... Uh, the problem, it's the provocation for all kinds of questions and doubts. Now, Jesus understands how time works on our doubts. And so he tells a story about time. Let's grab our Bibles and open up to Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Uh, if you'd be willing to do so, I'd ask you to remain seated today so that you can just absorb this story. And yet I'd love for you to turn there because we'll be looking at it in more detail a little bit later on. It's on page 806 of the Pew Bible. Matthew 25, 1 through 13. I'll read, you listen. When I'm done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. The story Jesus told. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. Uh, but at midnight there was a sound. Look, here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, hey, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, no. There will not be enough for you and for us. You'd better go to the dealers and buy some for yourself. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, Jesus says, therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. 
heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just heard never will. It's a story of waiting, time, history. Waiting for the groom. Ten bridesmaids. Now, they're probably, we don't know that they're in the wedding party. When we say bridesmaids, it's someone who's in the wedding party, a special guest. That's not the word here. The word here is just marriageable person, woman of marriageable age. Um, it's actually in that culture, probably these are girls, we call them, 13 to 14-year-old girls uh, that are there waiting for the groom. And uh, you might imagine them sitting under an old olive tree by the gate. There's a lot of giggling and they look at each other's dresses. Aren't these pretty? And time passes, tick-tock, and the groom doesn't show up. I wonder what happened. Hey, maybe, maybe he slept in. On your wedding day, would you sleep in? While we waited, we danced together, practicing and teaching each other new steps. We got tired after a while and we sat down. This olive tree has big craggly roots and we rested in the shade. The morning was growing on and turning into the afternoon. We uh, imagined which one of us might be the first one to get married ourselves. We joked about what it would be like to be fat with child and we pushed out our bellies and laughed. Silly play. But the groom didn't show. Oh, no, no, this happens sometimes. I mean, there are a lot of preparations to be made for a wedding banquet. And the groom, this one lives at a distance in another town. It takes a while to get here. We weren't worried. But it did begin to get cool. What is going on? The traffic coming to and fro at the gate began to thin and slow down. Soon the air was thick with dinner smoke. And still, the groom didn't show. We began to wonder, has there been some kind of a mistake? Did we get the place wrong? Did, did we get the day wrong? Is it possible that maybe we weren't invited? We continued to wait and Soon the chill turned to downright cold. Evening fell on us while we sat under that tree. It became dark, and soon very dark. Now, we didn't have any supplies to make a fire and create some light and get some warmth, but we did have lamps. <laughs> we didn't think we'd need the lamps until it was time to come back from the party late at night, but we lit them anyways just for warmth. And still, no groom. To be honest, the questions, they started to get harder. I would say they turned over into doubt, downright doubt. We were saying to each other things like, I, I wonder, is it possible that there is no wedding at all? Or that the groom got cold feet, that he changed his mind? Is it possible there isn't even a groom? Is it possible that the bride has been abandoned? Maybe that we have been abandoned, that we've been set up and that we're fools. The dark thoughts could be seen in dark faces and eyes that began to close and one by one we fell asleep under that tree. And you know what it's like to be woken up when you're asleep. You don't really know what's happening. We were groggy when all of a sudden in the dead of night when it was darkest, we heard someone shouting outside the gate, a voice, what's going on? And from the distant darkness, we heard this voice, look, the bridegroom. It was the voice of the best man. 
telling us the groom is coming. Now, that's the story as it would have been heard in the first century. And I want you to notice two things about that story. The first is this, that Jesus validates our doubts about time. Jesus knows that you and I will doubt, and he validates that. He builds it right into the story. All the stories in Matthew 24 and 25 have to do with absence. They're all about the absence of God. You might know something about the absence of God in your life. There's stories about Jesus saying, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come back. And this creates a time gap, a delay. Perhaps we might even say empty time. And the question during that period is, where is God now? This is the question of our age. Where is God now? Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, explains how our understanding of time has shifted. In the ancient world, time was understood to be embedded in eternity or what Taylor calls higher times. This moment is just a piece of all of eternity. Sometimes time was viewed as cyclical, always as endless. But then rather uniquely during the biblical age, we were led to believe that time has a beginning, middle, and end, that progress is possible, that time is being guided by a loving God towards a glorious conclusion. Jesus himself claims to be the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Then another change by the time we get through the Enlightenment to the modern age, in our age now, the way we imagine time is very different. We borrow this concept that there's a good end, but now we disassociate it from higher times or eternity or God or even spirituality, and it's all in our hands. Progress is what we believe in. New is always better than old, and we believe ourselves to be superior to our forebears, and if things go the way they should, our children should be superior to us. And if there is going to be a happy ending to this story, it's up to us through our education, through our science, through our technology. That's just how we see time now. There's a quote here from Charles Taylor. He says, the ancient view wove the history of world events in secular time into the framework of higher times. These were integrated. The things and happenings of our world had a depth in God's eternity which they lost when this sense faded. So now the problem is that once we lose a sense of higher time, we lose the meaning of time, of our time. We lose the meaning of our waiting, this life, this age, history. It's like we're waiting. We can't even remember exactly what we're waiting for anymore. Stephen Jay Gould, the Harvard uh, scientist, raises questions about the meaning of life. He writes, we are here because an one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. We may yearn for a higher answer about the meaning of life, but none exists. This explanation, though superficially troubling, is ultimately liberating. We must construct these answers for ourselves. You see, there is no higher time, Dr. Gould is saying, so we really have to, it's up to us now to construct answers to the question, what is the meaning of my life? And we come up with different answers to these questions. Uh, many of us have kind of utopian solutions or answers. I just last week on PBS heard Sebastian Thrun, who's a, a tech CEO, say that, you know, in the future we're going to look back on the t present day as though we today look back on the uh, Middle Ages. 
We're gonna, because he says artificial intelligence is going to give us all IQs of 10,000 and we're going to solve all of our own problems. See, that's a utopian vision of time. But does it actually give enough account for human nature and the reality of evil in the world today? I'm not sure. But then there, on the other hand, there are these dystopians account. And you don't need to read uh, any philosophy to get to this. You just have to turn on your television set or uh, Netflix and see the incredible proliferation of apocalyptic television shows, post-apocalyptic, dystopian uh, programs. I mean, what is it about our age that we have this growing sense that this story is not going to end well? I don't know how it will go. It will be zombies. It will be aliens. It will be a meteorite. Somehow disaster is in the wings. That's what we think about. But I'm not sure this gives adequate account for God and for the power of goodness in the world. So you see, this question, where is God now, is a question that we're playing around with our age. We have to in our age. We all both believe and doubt. And at the same time, we don't make, know how to make sense of it. And we say that this question was also a question for the followers of Jesus in his day. You know what their doubts were, Peter, James, and John? You know what their doubts would have been? They would have been around whether Jesus was the Messiah. And here's how they probably would have framed it. They would have said, you know what? The Messiah promises to bring peace in the world. Jesus claims to be the Messiah. And there is no peace in the world. Therefore, Jesus' claim to be the Messiah must be wrong. Right? You see how that works? They, they just knew when the Messiah comes, there'll be peace, there'll be justice. The, the new age will have come. Jesus, then we look around, we, go, we don't see peace, we don't see justice. Therefore, you can't claim that the Messiah has come yet. And Jesus understands that. That's why he's telling them all these stories in Matthew 24. He says, I want to give you meaning for my absence. I want you to understand what's going on. By the way, that's still the biggest argument in the Jewish community. If you go to websites uh, against Christianity, against the, the, the belief, the claim that Jesus is the Messiah. What, what, what Jesus is, is doing is addressing our doubts. We may have slightly different doubts than the disciples, but we have doubts. We're waiting too. We're waiting for answers to our questions. We're waiting for peace in a troubled world. We're waiting for healing in parts of our lives that are broken and disjointed. We're waiting for justice. Where is God? Why isn't he answering my prayers? Am I a fool to follow Jesus? See, Jesus knows all about this, and he's building these doubts into the story that he tells. He's the one that makes this story the way it is. What he's trying to say is that doubt is just a part of faith. The doubt is just a part of the faithful response of godly people to empty time. He says in verse 1, then, meaning at that time, the kingdom will be like this. It'll be like this. And this is why he tells about two sets of bridesmaids, you know. The foolish ones are the ones who think that faith ought to be simple. And they kind of rush out in the, in the morning naively, not making any preparation. Oh, yeah, they've got their uh, handful of stock answers to tough questions. They see things in black and white. And they have to carefully curate them so that nobody would disrupt them or cause them to think at all. They don't bring any oil. They just go out. They make no plans. And then, of course, when the night grows long, they're nowhere around because they're trying to fix the problem, lack of preparation. On the other hand, the wise bridesmaids, those are the ones who know, you know what, life is hard, things just go wrong, things are challenging, so I'm going to be supplied. And they take these big jugs of oil and they carry them with them. And everyone's going, what in the world are you doing that? Well, what we're doing is we're preparing for the worst. We know that the night comes and with it a struggle. And that's the way faith is. It's a struggle in the night. 
Jesus wants you to know there's nothing wrong with you when you raise these kinds of troubling questions. So that's the first thing you see in this text, that Jesus validates our doubts about time. But then there's a second thing. The the other thing I'd like you to notice is that Jesus assures us of God's faithfulness through time. There's an assurance here. And to see it, you have to see who's in the background. It's the groom. Behind this, there's a character, the groom. He's the one who's driving the narrative here. What you learn is that absence is actually a part of weddings in the ancient world. In the ancient world, a wedding would be preceded by a period of a betrothal, usually a year long. It started, the clock started when the, the groom with his family usually went to the house of the bride and her family. And the groom would enter into a betrothal contract with her father. And uh, then this happy young lad would leave. He'd go away. He'd go back to his father's house to get ready, to make preparations. He'd have to earn some money now to support two of them. He'd have to build a home so there'd be a place for his wife. You see, he goes away during the period of betrothal to prepare a place for her. And then when it's the day of the wedding, the appointed time, they make all these preparations for a great celebration. And he and the best man and some of their buddies will go walk back to the bridegroom's, uh, to the bride's home. And they, right, the best man announces the arrival of the groom and all the town streams out. And, of course, from the bride's house come all these beautifully clothed uh, little girls, elderly women, father of the bride. And, they, and they, they dance their way, this grand procession through the town, out to the next town, and over to where the party would happen at the, the father's, uh, the bridegroom's house. And this is just what they would have culturally understood about weddings that absence is actually a part of the whole ceremony broadly understood. Jesus seems to be drawing on this language in the upper room when he speaks to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. Jesus says to them, I go to prepare a place for you. I think I have this for the slide. Let me read it to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. See what he's saying? Jesus is saying, just think of it like a wedding. Yes, there's going to be this awkward delay, this time that feels very empty to you. Yes, the absence of God will be a reality for you. But I got to tell you what kind of a reality is. It's the kind of reality of a bridegroom who goes away to prepare a place for you. What Jewish girls would have known is you got to worry about the guys, not who leave, but the ones who hang around. It's the ones who hang around that, that, are, that are trouble. You know, what you want to hear is, I love you, I'm going to marry you, and, and then he goes away. It's the ones that leave, that are really committed, that are faithful. So it's a sign of faithfulness to leave. The point then is that there's meaning in an age of empty time. It's even recognizable to people outside of the church in the secular age. For example, let me give you two illustrations of this. Walter Isaacson in his book about Steve Jobs talks about how Jobs had this yearning for eternity. Jobs says, I'm about 50-50 on believing in God. For most of my life, I felt that there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. I like to think that something survives after you die. It's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and maybe a little wisdom and it just goes away. I gotta believe that we're eternal beings. Likewise, Leonard Bernstein talks about how music points him to uh, eternity. 
He says, Beethoven turned out pieces of breathtaking rightness. You get the feeling that whatever note succeeds the last is the only possible note that can rightly happen at that instant. Now, Beethoven has the stuff from heaven, he says. There's something that checks throughout, that follows its own law consistently, something we can trust that will never let us down. He's writing about faithfulness. He's not talking about God directly, but there's just something about that music that makes you sense. There is in the world a faithfulness that you can trust and it will never let you down. Jesus is revealing the faithfulness of God in his own person. We believe that within the church. The time is not empty. Remember the baggage claim? The way that they solved the problem in Houston was they gave you something to do during otherwise empty time. They gave the empty space meaning. They allowed you to occupy it with something intentional and that relieved the pressure. And Jesus is doing the same. In this story, he's inviting us, his followers, to be intentional in that, in that gap, in that delay. What is it that Jesus is inviting us to do? Know the groom. Get to know the groom. That's the grand invitation of this passage. Get to know the groom. You see that in, in two places. And, 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 in, and in those two places, we learn that we get to know the groom through word and spirit. The, the closed door in the story is an invitation to the word. By the way, the foolish bridesmaids are occupied at the dealer when everybody else goes on to the uh, wedding. And by the time they get there, the party's already well underway. You can hear the techno pop of the dance floor in the courtyard behind. You can hardly even hear them knocking at the door. We don't know actually who answers the door. I think it was probably a, a caretaker or somebody else who just near the door, opens the door at, or just a crack and says, what, what do you want? And they say, oh, you know, we're part of the, 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 the wedding party. And he goes, I doubt that because everybody just arrived, you know, an hour ago. Where have you been? And they said, truly, I don't even know you. He's thinking they're, part, they're, they're wedding crashers, right? So I've seen the movie, so you're not coming in at, at all. Um, I don't know you. And that, those words, I don't know you, are an echo of words that Jesus has put earlier into the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that? Some of you will come and say, Lord, Lord, look at all the stuff we've done. He says, but I'll have to say to you, I never know you. He's talking about those who hear the word but don't do the word. We get to know the groom through the word, by hearing the word of God, by responding faithfully as best we can to the word of God. But then there's another image here. If the closed door represents the word of God, the, the, the jugs, the, the vessels of oil represent the Holy Spirit. Oil always stands for Holy Spirit in the scripture. Oil uh, represents the nearness of God, the spirit of God in our lives. And indeed, the New Testament teaches us that we are vessels of oil, that God comes to live within us, every believer, to renew us and to strengthen us, to transform us, to be with us through every troubling turn in this period of otherwise empty time. The Holy Spirit. Intimacy. And the fact is that the only way through our doubts is to know the groom, to get to know him. Not facts about him, but to know him intimately. Because the opposite of doubt is really trust. And trust is a relationship word. We're not trying to work from doubt to facts so much as trying to work from doubt to trust, are we not, to relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. I trust my wife because I know her. Now, we've been married 28 years. Let me show you a picture of us when we were uh, uh, young <laughs> uh, wedding party people. This is our honeymoon, actually. We were in Idaho and 
We're there by a stream. And when I'm around body of water, sometimes I like to lean on Anne and give her a little bit of a nudge over the edge. And then I grab her arm and hold her there in a position of vulnerability. I'm hanging her out over the water. And what she says when I do that to her is, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you. Which is her way of saying, if you drop me, you're dead. Because I'm completely vulnerable here. I'm completely dependent upon you. But you know what, as I look at that picture and I see these lovely young faces, I realize we didn't know anything about trust back then, 28 years ago. But uh, this summer we went on a second honeymoon. That's what I learned our sabbatical was. Anne said, we're going to go to Hawaii and this is going to be our second honeymoon. And we did that. So one night we're eating uh, along the beach at a little restaurant there. And while we're just finishing up our dinner, this, this bride and groom come along and all their paraphernalia and the photographers are taking pictures of them. And at one point the bride jumps up into the arms of the groom and everybody goes, oh, that's so cute. And I look at Anne, I go, we can do that after 28 years. So we paid our bill and we got out in front of the rail right there with the whole restaurant watching. And I said, come on. So Anne runs up to me and I, she jumps and I grab her. <laughs> and now I'll tell you what, she trusts me. I didn't have to say anything and I trust her. And the reason for that is time. The reason for that is we know each other and we've been through a lot and we've been through a lot that's really, really hard. And it's out of that that our mutual trust has grown. By the way, I'll also add that she's no less a mystery to me than she was when we were dating. <laughs> so I, I can know her, but I don't know all about her. I constantly wonder. I'm sure she'd say the same about me. Listen, has the airline ever lost one of your bags? Have you ever lost a suitcase to, an air, to, to a flight? I bet you have. There's that awkward moment when, when you're standing there and um, it's the moment of truth that when the carousel stops. And it was only like four or five bags that are there and a handful of people that are standing and it's like none of our bags are there. So where are the people you know, that belong to these bags and where are the bags that belong to these people? And it's at that point that your doubts seem to be completely validated, right? Okay, I knew it. This airline's a loser, uh, or I'm a loser for checking the bag. It's just, it's just right there in front of you, and you kind of look around at each other and go, yep, we're the six losers. It's happened to us this time. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's sometimes how I feel as a follower of Jesus Christ. And frankly, the word that comes to my mind is just embarrassed. I, I feel embarrassed at times that I'm not a stronger believer. I feel embarrassed about the unanswered prayers in my life. I feel embarrassed about certain persisting behaviors that I, I think I'm too old for this. I've walked with Jesus for too long with this. And I, and I want to ask to you, what about you today? Where has that delay troubled you? What are your doubts? Where is God embarrassingly absent in your life right now? And I want to remind you, on the authority of the word of God, A, there's nothing wrong with you. Jesus says this is part of the plan. Nothing wrong with you. And B, God is faithful in the midst of it. He is faithful in the midst of whatever you're going through right now. He will use this time for a redemptive purpose. Two last quotes for you. Uh, one from the Apostle Paul, who was serving time in jail when he wrote to the Philippians. And he said this, I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. What does he say? He says, I know that this moment is not empty. It's pregnant with higher time. Eternity is right here in this moment for you. And I'm confident of the one who is faithful to begin something, who has begun something in you, to bring it to completion. The other quote I just couldn't resist throwing in there, Fyodor Dostoevsky says, my Hosanna is born on a furnace of doubt. 
my song of praise actually comes out of, is forged in an experience of doubt. Now, you know, when you do lose a bag, the, answer, uh, the answers never come from the airline. They don't tell you what happened to it. And you have that awkward thing where you go to bed and you're all together and with unbrushed teeth. Um, but there is a kind of a thrill that comes in the night oftentimes. The doorbell rings. And you open the door and it's not just your bag, it's a person. A friendly person who's been driving a van all night long came to you. And I want to say, that feels good. They sent me a person. They sent me a person. And the truth is the same for us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the mystery of your love. Isaiah 62.5 promises, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. May we know today the truth of that that you rejoice over it. It would be enough that you tolerate us, but you rejoice over us. Pray, fill us with your spirit. Pray, make us attentive. Open our ears to your word that we might know the bridegroom and uh, listen carefully for the cry, behold, the bridegroom has come. In Jesus' name, amen.